It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Awesome. You guys may be seated. And if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. Jumping back into our previously scheduled studies, uh, we are going to be continuing the Gospel of Luke. And also, uh, just a quick announcement, uh, this Friday, Lisette and myself will be engaging in marriage. Woot, woot! So, <laughs> um, yes, so praise the Lord for that. Um, keep us in prayer. And I, I want to let you guys know, the following Sunday, we're still having service here. Um, I am going to be here. However, uh, Mike Sanchez, um, a good friend of mine and pastor, is going to come down and give us a, a, a Bible study. And I, I love being able to, to hear from my friend. He's always given us a, a word of encouragement whenever he's come down to, uh, to teach. So be here for that. And uh, we're going to jump now into where we left off. In the Gospel of Luke, see, we've been studying now Jesus, his life ministry, the ministry where he was preaching and teaching and healing. And at this point in the account, in our study, Jesus has been already giving the sermons. He's been healing the multitudes. And of his family, John the Baptist had also been going out baptizing and preaching a message of repentance. And John the Baptist spoke out against the Jewish rulers like Herod, who were being immoral. If you guys remember Herod, who was this sort of Jewish ruler who was placed there by the Roman government, he had married illegally Herodias. You see, this was wrong, even according to the Jewish law, because the woman Herodias, who he married, was his half-brother's wife, and he stole her from him. He divorced his current wife and then took her on. Now, because of this, John the Baptist, he would preach against such sins, He wasn't politically correct. And sometimes we think that cancel culture just started within the last few years. But in reality, cancel culture back then was probably much much worse. And it started back then. So because of John's condemnation against Herod's sin, he had John the Baptist imprisoned. You see, Herod had subjects who were Jewish and also who were semi-Arab, because of hearing about his actions, they might begin to oppose him. So he shut up John in prison. And now while John the Baptist sat there in his jail cell, I'm wondering if he began to wonder about Jesus, who was practically his cousin. Jesus and John, they grew up learning the wisdom of God from their parents. They heard the accounts of how the angels appeared to both of their mothers, their father and their mother. And they were prepared to fulfill their call to turn the hearts of Israel back to God. You see, John the Baptist understood to a degree that Jesus was meant for a purpose greater than himself greater than John the Baptist's purpose. And he knew that he would be Jesus' forerunner. But exactly how this was all going to play out, John the Baptist was probably a little confused about. John believed in the Messiah, and John believed that Israel would be set free. But here he was, in the jail, in the dungeon, doing what he was called to do, And it ended him up in a cell. 
He's probably thinking, hey, like, what's going on? Here I am serving the Messiah, Jesus, proclaiming his reign, and look at where it's gotten me. All those days and those hours and minutes spent serving Jesus, and here I am. Why me? What did I do to deserve this? Is this Jesus the one who came to save me and Israel? Is this Jesus really the Messiah? So John the Baptist has these questions, I'm sure, as he's there. And it's right here where we pick up in our text this morning in Luke's gospel, chapter 7, beginning with verse 18. It says, Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. See, John also had people who were following after him because John was a leader. You want to know if you're a leader? Turn around and see if someone's following you. That's how you know you're a leader. If nobody's following you, maybe you need to see and ask yourself if you're really a leader. But John had these disciples who he says, then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. What things? He's talking about the resurrection of the widow's son that we learned about a few weeks ago. He's talking about the healing of the centurion's servant, the preachings of Jesus. These are the things that Jesus was doing. And then in verse 19, And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? So the question to Jesus Are you the one sent to liberate us? Is it someone else? At this point, not only was John in jail, but Jesus also was not being widely received and accepted by all of the Jews. So John, as he's sitting there in this jail cell, is wondering like, Jesus, are you the Messiah? Are you the coming one? Are you the one who is going to liberate us? He's questioning who Jesus is. Later on in in Matthew's gospel, Jesus will even begin to ask his own disciples, who do men say that I am? In Matthew's gospel, chapter 16, Jesus says to his disciples, who do men say that I am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who do you say that Jesus is this morning? Who do you say that Jesus is personally? not just theologically. I was asked that question this week. Kind of caught me off guard, actually. We went in for premarital counseling and the, the teacher at the, asked us, Rich Valencia, he said, who is God to you? Who is Jesus to you? Not, don't give me, he said, don't give me the Bible answer. Give me your own personal answer. And I told him, well, he's my savior because he saved me. And he is my God because he deserves my life. And he deserves me to serve him. That's who he is to me personally. You see, today, the Jews, they don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah or as God. They're still waiting for a man to come, the Messiah, to bring peace to the world. Here's the scary thing about that. As the Jews are waiting for this man to come to bring peace to the world, what does the book of Revelation say is coming? Antichrist, who will bring peace to this world for a a season. One day a man will come and he's going to bring peace in Israel such as this world has not seen. And he's going to sit in the temple and demand to be worshipped. This is the Antichrist. 
So as the Jews today wait for the Messiah, a man is being prepared to swindle them into damnation. At least he's going to attempt to. See, I've heard a theory that in every generation, Satan attempts to groom a man to be the Antichrist. From 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, it says, Every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. So you think of guys like Hitler or, I don't know, these evil men, wicked men who attack the Jews so ferociously. That spirit of Antichrist. But God is not done with Israel. He is going to redeem his people the way he's redeemed us. Now the disciples of John, they were wondering and then they went to Jesus to find out, okay, Jesus, who, who are you? Our, our friend John the Baptist is asking. And then in verse 20, it says, When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits. And to many blind, he gave sight. Excuse me. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So John the Baptist there in prison goes, sends his disciples, go ask Jesus what's going on. Ask him if he's the Messiah. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, why am I in these chains? But Jesus said, blessed is he who is not offended. When you look at what Jesus responded to these two men, how he's responding to John the Baptist, he didn't get the direct answer. He didn't say, yes, I am the Messiah. He said, look, at, tell John the works that I'm doing. Tell John how there has been healings, how the lame are able to walk, how lepers are being healed, how the blind are able to hear and see. You see, we don't always get all the answers. I'm reminded in the Old Testament of Job. How when he was enduring all the suffering that Satan had attacked him with, at the end of the book of Job, God doesn't tell Job, Job, this is why you are suffering. God tells Job, Job, I'm sovereign over everything. I'm sovereign over the heavens and the earth and the stars above. I've created everything. And he reminds Job of who Job is, the world that he lives in, and of who he is. You see, when it comes to suffering in a believer's life, there is some meaning that we're not going to fully understand. But the opposite is that sin and unbelief cannot add any meaning at all to your trials. Sin and pleasure, they cannot add meaning to suffering. They only complicate things. And when you look at the response of John the Baptist or to John the Baptist, it's, it's not straightforward. But Jesus is pointing to his works. Why does Jesus point to the works that he performed to show who he is? 
Well, in Deuteronomy 19.15, it says, By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. And then do you guys remember in John's gospel when we studied how Jesus would testify that his works, how God, the word, all pointed to him being the Messiah, being equal to God? You see, that's the big difference between Christianity and a lot of other religions out there. We believe that Jesus is God, that he is part of the Trinity, he is equal with God. Sometimes I've wondered, well, why can't Mormons be saved? They believe in Jesus, right? Yes, but they deny that he's God. And you cannot deny that Jesus is God and enter into the kingdom. Even Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe he's the son of God, but they don't see him as equal with God. They don't believe that he is God. They believe he is like a God. This is the main thing about Christianity is that Jesus claims to be the I am. Just like that burning fire in the account of Moses' story, I am that I am. In John chapter five, why don't we turn to John chapter five in our Bibles? If I had candy right now, I would do what's called a sword drill. And I would say the first person to get to John chapter 5 and read verse 32 gets this candy, but I have no candy, so I have nothing to satisfy your flesh. So just tr- turn to John chapter 5, verse 32. It says, There is, this is Jesus now speaking. He says, There is another who bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. You see, John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the forerunner. And then look at verse 36 on that same portion of scripture right there. Then Jesus said, but I have a greater witness than John's. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. So Jesus' works, preaching, teaching, healing, those works were also bearing witness of who Jesus was, the Messiah. And then in verse 37, in that same portion of scripture, it says, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him, you do not believe. So you have to believe in Jesus. Verse 39, you search the scriptures for in them, you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You see, Jesus here is equating himself as being equal to the word. He's saying, look, you have searched through the scriptures and you're thinking that by searching and reading all these scriptures in the Bible that you're gaining eternal life. But these words in this Bible are testifying of me. That's Jesus, he's saying. And if you deny me, then you're denying the word. See, God and the scriptures proclaimed who Jesus was. There was evidence in Jesus's life that he was the Messiah. So I ask you believers this morning here today, is there evidence in your life that you are a believer? Is there evidence in your life that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you love God? Sure. Can people tell? Do you love your neighbor? Is it obvious? 
in James chapter 2, he talks about works and, and faith. You see, because we have to have works, right? We don't use works as a means of gaining salvation, but works are necessary. In James chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation. You could just listen along. It says, Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Faith without works is dead. You need, you see, we need to stop being these undercover Christians. We're going to work and we're like, we're going to get people saved and no one's going to know I'm a Christian. No, we need to leave that. Lately, I've been trying to be subtle with my approach with some of the new trainees at work. Uh, I work in an HVAC as an HVAC technician and I, and I train the new hires. And I don't right away greet them like, hey, I'm Pastor Sal, it's nice to meet you. <laughs> Are you ready to open the Bible? No, I don't do that. For the most part, I, I try to even downplay a little bit the ministry side just so I could build that relationship with them. But then I, I constantly find myself at times thinking like, what, what are you doing, Sal? Because like, they'll ask me like, hey, you got plans for the weekend? I could be like, nope, nothing. Nothing's happening. Or I could tell them, yeah, Sunday morning I teach at a church. I pastor a church. Sometimes they've asked me on Wednesday nights or Thursdays, like, oh, are you doing anything tonight? And I'm just like, mm. there's that hesitation at times. And because I was thinking, oh, maybe I, I need to try to build that relationship. I don't want to scare them away. And I find myself, you know what? I, it just comes out. It comes out one way or another. They start asking questions about your life, who you are. May it come out in your life. I hope and I pray that your life is full of Christ in a way that when people ask about your daily life, normal things, that you don't have a choice but to tell them the truth. Tell them about the Sunday morning service that you'll be attending. Be bold. Let's get awkward with people. You know, when you get in that conversation. Now, there is a balance. Please don't think that I'm giving you guys licenses to just, you know, as Christians, like, we're already going to be looked at as weird, Okay. Let's, let's get that out there on the table. We're going to be looked at as weird, and that's cool. That's reward for us in heaven. But there is sometimes that extreme that people can go to and in order to proclaim themselves as so self-righteous that you don't need to be like singing worship songs on the bus or I don't know if anyone takes the bus, but <laughs> out loud just to get people's attention. You know, be yourself. Let God just flow through you. Let your life so shine that when men see your good works, that they praise God. We must speak truth and love. You see, love without truth, that's hypocrisy. And truth without love is brutality. There needs to be both. There needs to be a balance. If I don't warn someone as I see them going down the river, about to fall off the waterfall, if I don't warn them, hey, there, there's an end to that. There's a waterfall and it, you're, gonna, you're heading right towards that. If I don't warn them of that, that's, that's shame on me. But if I am warning them, but it's not because I love them, but it's because I hate them, and I'm like, I can't wait till you go to hell. That's brutality. That's wrong. We need both. 
And we can only be bold in Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. See, I remember my friends, Nick and I, we would we'd go up to Santa Cruz thinking uh, we're going to go take this surf trip and on the way we're going to just evangelize the world. We're going to start revivals. And there'd be times when we'd be going out and there would be up there in Santa Cruz, it's a lot of very liberal and crazy lifestyles, people smoking weed and it's just their, their sin is out. It's out there. And we would go there and feel like, oh man, suddenly our boldness, we'd, our tails would hide between our legs and we'd be like, feel like, oh, like how do we even approach these people? I'm not saying that people shouldn't, but I think for me and Nick at the time, in the moment, we were trying to save the world like the Avengers or something. And the Lord was humbling us and showing us that, you know, God's gifted us in certain areas, allowing us to grow. And so when you are trying to serve the Lord and to show love to people, allow the Holy Spirit to open those doors. Pray for them to be opened. Ask God, would you just open a a door for me to, to witness to someone today? to evangelize to someone, to even just minister to someone, to pray with someone. You want to know how you know if you're doing good ministry in the day? Who did you pray with today? Ask yourself that. It's easy to pray with someone. There's that little bit of fear before you start that conversation, but prayer is so powerful. And when someone comes and tells you about a situation that they're in, instead of saying, all right, I'm going to pray for you, brother, and then they leave your presence and then you forget about it completely and never think about it again, no, pray for them right there. Like, hey, let me pray with you about this right now. Even if they're not a believer, they're going to be like, what? Uh, Okay, sure. They'll usually take it, honestly. Even the non-believer in times of trial seek out for God's help. In our back in our study, in Luke's gospel, chapter 7, verse 24, it says, When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. He said, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? See, there were these reeds out there by the Jordan River and also in the wilderness. And he's saying, did you go out there to see the wilderness plants? No, they didn't go out there to go see the wilderness plants, the people who were seeking John the Baptist. In verse 25, but what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. See, he's asking, did you guys go out there to see some rich guy or some politician? They're like, no, we didn't go out there to see a rich man or a politician. In verse 26, but what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. Why does Jesus say that John the Baptist is more than a prophet? The reason why John the Baptist is more than a prophet because all the Old Testament prophecies and the prophets were proclaiming that the Messiah was coming, that the Messiah was going to come and redeem Israel. John the Baptist was saying the Messiah is here. He's my cousin. And he's come to save this world, to redeem Israel. In verse 27, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So now this is referring to us here today. You see, John the Baptist, Jesus said, was the greatest prophet. Jesus said this about John the Baptist. But he said that those who are 
and the least in the kingdom of, of God are greater than John the Baptist. And wh- how can he say that? Because we are now living in an era after Jesus has already resurrected. This past week, seven days ago, we celebrated Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And there are so many blessings beyond count that we have received because Jesus has rose again. So out of those abundance of blessings, I wrote down seven for us this morning that we can take home with and realize, look, this is what Jesus means to us. This is what God has for us who believe in him. So if you guys do take notes, I have written seven blessings of the new covenant. That's the new relationship that we have with God the Father through Jesus after his resurrection. So number one, on the seven blessings of the new covenant, number one, God removes, removes all of our sins. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. See, God takes away the sin, whereas before Jesus died and rose on the cross, rose from the grave, they would have to have animal sacrifice in order every year. They would sacrifice the cow, the sheep. And when they would do that, it would only get them up until the next year. And that wasn't even a removal of the sins. It was a covering of the sins so that they would be covered by God's mercy, but not removed. They wouldn't even be able to enter into eternity, into heaven at that point. Later on, they did when Jesus rose from the grave. So because of Jesus' resurrection, we have our sins removed. Secondly, God gives us eternal life. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, now as a believer, yeah, we have this life and it's like about that. You can't even see it in comparison to eternity. It's so, eternity is forever. It's so vast. And we have this little itty bitty living space. And everything that we do in that little space, it echoes into eternity. So God gives us that eternal life. Thirdly, God qualifies us. In Colossians 1.12, it says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. See, God qualifies us. He does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. See, many of us are going to find out or are finding out or have found out that the call of God in your life, you really aren't qualified for it. We're not prepared or we're not ready for it. But God prepares us. And because it's God who's leading us, he qualifies us. It's by his power, his work, his spirit that we are able to do the things that he's calling us to do. In Zechariah's prophecy, it says, not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And I love it when God uses foolish things to confound the wise. When God uses things that don't make sense to have this big movement behind it. When I see a guy like Pastor Chuck Smith wearing a, a business suit, ministering to all, and he's, by the way, old, fat, bald, okay? Nothing cool about the picture of Chuck Smith in that moment, right? But yet, he is used to bring all these hippies in the 70s to come to know Jesus. So it wasn't about 
Chuck Smith's way to be hip and fly and cool with the youth. No, God used a man who was submitted to the Lord. And that's what we need to be. God qualifies us. Fourthly, God gives us the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, verse 26, it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. See, Jesus, before he was put to the cross, told his disciples, look, it's better that I go because when I leave, God is going to send the helper. That's going to be the Holy Spirit, the Paracletus, to come teach you. So because of the resurrection now, we have the Holy Spirit in our lives. Fifthly, we have access directly to the Father. Whereas before, the saints, they would have to, again, do those sacrifices. There would be a priest who would be a mediator between God and man. Man would go to a priest and say, okay, here's my offering, my sacrifice. Please sacrifice this on behalf of me. And that's how men and God related back then. But now because of the resurrection, we don't have to have an animal sacrifice so that we can get in a moment with the Lord. We go directly to the Father. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 and 16, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love that. Coming boldly to the throne of grace. Coming boldly into the presence of God, the Father saying, Father, I'm a sinner. I need help. And sixth, because of the new covenant, we are given victory over the enemy. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, it says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. See, Satan and his demons, they're the losers when we fight them with God. They're not victorious. If you guys battle with demonic oppression or night terrors and things of that nature, there is victory over the enemy through Christ. Do we have battles? Absolutely. But Jesus has won the the whole war. We are more than overcomers. In verse 7, I'm sorry, not verse 7, my seventh point. You see, Jesus always is with us and in us. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I taught a whole Bible study on this verse last Wednesday. But in Galatians 2, 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Because Jesus comes into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. I remember, and I said this on Wednesday, I'll say it again, when my first ever experience about Jesus and salvation, I was a little kid. and My mom invited me and my sister into her room and said, would you guys like to receive Jesus into your heart? And I was probably like four or five or maybe even smaller than that. But when she asked me if I would like to receive Jesus in my heart, I looked at her and I, I laughed and mocked and I was like, Jesus, I don't see Jesus. Where's he? He's going to come in my heart. What? what? Like this little kid, you know, just being kind of silly. And then my mom was like, no, this is serious. Like, You can't like joke right now. And I did in that moment. I remember we went through the prayer and 
was my first kind of experience, I'll say, with Christianity. One of them. And it was the Holy Spirit planting that seed that Jesus does live with us in our spirit. You see, we're a three-part being, body, soul, and spirit. We have our bag of meat. It's before us. It gets old and tired, and that's going to fade away. But our spirit, which is awakened when we accept Jesus into our life, that lives forever. Look at verse 29, back in Luke's gospel, chapter 7. It says, And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors, justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So two different parties, the party that believes and accepts this message And there was another group that denied it, that did not believe. And there's always going to be that in the world. Jesus said that the way to heaven, it's narrow and very few make it and it's hard. But the way to hell is this wide open gate and many will go to destruction. So when we look at the world and we're wondering, man, what? Why are things so turned upside down? Why is it so evil and wicked in this world? Understand and realize that this is a fallen world and that one day this world will be made new. In verse 31, And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children, sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned for you, to you, and you did not weep. See, this little parable, this illustration that they give, the idea was that those who have a heart to criticize will always find something to criticize. That's because people are fickle. See, John the Baptist was a very chaste man and he lived out there in the wilderness. He would eat locusts and honey and he had some really raggedy garments, camel's hair. And the the religious leaders thought, man, this guy's crazy. And on on the reverse side, Jesus, he dwelt with publicans and sinners. And the Pharisees didn't like that either. Look at verse 33. It says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by all her children. So these Pharisees, there was nothing that they can do, that anyone can do to please them in their self-righteousness. You see, at the end there, Jesus is reminding us that wisdom has works. It leads, there's evidence to it coming forth. That's the children of wisdom. It's justified by it. The Proverbs teaches us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So as I look at this portion of scripture, John the Baptist, there in prison, he's going through perhaps the worst trial in his life and where this is going to lead is to his own martyrdom. See, not now, but eventually. There's going to come a day when King Herod will be with all his other leaders, his rulers. And he will call for this young maiden to come and dance before his rulers. And it would be the seductive type of dance. 
Uh, and this would be a, a young woman. King Herod was, was a creep like that. And eventually, he would offer this young girl, he, out of his lust, he would say, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. So she would run to her mother and say, hey, what should I ask for? And her mother, who was Herodias, who hated John the Baptist, would say, ask for John's the Baptist, ask for his head on a platter. So the little girl ran to King Herod and said, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod, he actually regretted even offering such a thing. But because of the leaders and the men who were sitting around him, he didn't want to look weak. So he called for this man's head on a plate. You see, when you look at John the Baptist, his life, you could look at and see, man, from just the human perspective, this guy failed. He went out to try to be a, a runner for Jesus and for Christianity, and he was put to a stop. He was halted. But I don't think that's the way Jesus looks at it. Not at all. Not for a moment. I think God and Jesus looking at John the Baptist, they called him to be that forerunner, to carry that message that Jesus was coming and he fulfilled his duty. And when it was his time, then God said, come home. You see, because we live in this life, we don't understand completely the eternal realm on what God is doing and as he's sovereign when he calls them like John the Baptist. But now, John the Baptist, he's in there with Jesus in heaven. No longer is he worrying about the sufferings of a jail cell. But he's ready to come back with Jesus as we will one day to this earth. And we await that day and we're excited for it. So as you go about your week, remember to be bold. Bold as lions. Don't allow fear or your own ego to keep you from sharing truth with love. Remember what Jesus, his resurrection has done for you. What it's given you now. Because Jesus has resurrected. The promises that are yours. All those promises, you can relate them to the trial that you're in this morning. Victory over the enemy. Eternal life. The Holy Spirit. If God wants what's best for you, if you believe that. Then you can believe that by submitting unto him fully and completely, that he's going to look down upon you. He's going to be with you to fulfill and satisfy you, to give you contentment and peace through the trial. May we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, your grace, We thank you, Lord, that Jesus is real in our life. Father, I, I pray now, Lord, that if perhaps we feel like John the Baptist, Lord, sitting in prison, Lord God, dealing with pain and suffering, Lord God, we, we wonder why us, Lord, Why the trial? I pray and I ask, Father, that you would remind us that you are sovereign. That through this you would give us hope and, and peace and love. Father, give us a spirit of submission unto you. Lord, one that 
that is glorifying to you. We love you, Lord. And we thank you for this morning. Just prepare us, Father, for what's to come this week. And be with all these beautiful people, Father. Just protect them. Put a hedge of protection around them and fill them with your, your hope, your joy, your peace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.